The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 5. If you're using the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 808. And if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll skip to 27 through 32. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the Word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And while he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Go down to verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the beat goes on. We are continuing our study through Dr. Luke's gospel, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our sermon title this morning is going to be The Savior's Mission. So last week we saw the manifesto, the purpose statement declared by Jesus. This is why he has come. And in large part, what we're going to see is, well, what would that look like if that was true? If it's true that Jesus is this Isaiah 61 person, then what will that look like? Boots on the ground, real life, as things begin to go forward. And so the Savior's manifesto is going to roll into these 32 verses where we're going to see the Savior's mission. If you want to encapsulate the main idea this morning, boil these verses, these 32 verses down into a sentence, I think it would look like this that the gospel mission of Jesus has come with all God's authority over sin and sinners. You're going to see that authority theme, the powerful words of Jesus theme that Luke introduced last week, and he's going to now take pictures, snapshots of what does this actually look like in real life. He's going to move it from the realm of Anybody can say anything about anything and actually say, if this were real life, what would real life look like under the power and the authority of King Jesus? The gospel mission of Jesus has come, and we're going to see what that looks like, and it's come with all God's authority. Why? Because Jesus, as we've seen, is fully God and fully man. And what kind of authority is it? It is authority that is not only over sin and its effects, but actually it's an authority that exists over sinners as well. So we're going to pause, we're going to pray, we're going to seek the Lord 
We're going to ask him to make these words clear. Some of my favorite words of Christ are actually at the end of this gospel. In Luke 24, where King Jesus, resurrected from the dead, is walking with two disciples along the road to Emmaus. And there comes a point in time where they sort of like see and understand clearly. Like we were just talking to the one we saw crucified. And there's a little turn of phrase where it talks about how their eyes were open to see Jesus and their minds were open to understand the Scriptures. And that's exactly what we need this morning, amen? We need eyes to see our need for Jesus. In this sense, our eyes can be calloused, scaly, where we just assume, ah, eh, today's just another day and I'm not really quite sure I need Jesus today. We need the Spirit to open our eyes to see Jesus, and we need the Spirit's power to open our minds to understand the Scriptures before us as well, to see that these aren't just some good time stories that happened to those people a long time ago, but to see that there is something true, good, and right for you and for me this morning in these words, and we need to understand that. So let's pray for that. As a Jesus family, let's go to bat for one another right now. This is not spectator time. This is participation time, participation in prayer. Maybe look to your left, look to your right, see who's sitting around you, and go to the Lord in prayer on their behalf with that prayer. Lord, would you help them see Jesus? Would you help them to understand these words this morning? And then we'll get into the text, okay? So let's pray. Lord, we pray these things to you as a Jesus family. We're prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to have scaly eyes, prone to have dense, heavy minds that are slow, foggy. So would you give us eyes to see our need for Jesus this morning? I'm talking for believer and unbeliever alike. Those who know Jesus need to see Jesus this morning. And those who are like, yeah, I just don't know about this Jesus thing. I've got my questions. I've got my doubts. I'm not quite sure. I've got sort of a rough history with the church. I'm not, I'm not quite sure how to process these things. Lord, would you help them to see their need for you this morning? Would you give us mind to understand? Spirit, do this. Please give us a mind that understands these scriptures this morning. We ask this in the powerful name of King Jesus, for his name, for his fame, and for his glory. It's in Christ we pray. Amen. If you remember, last week we began a new section in Luke's gospel, a section which we we're calling the Savior's Manifesto. We've seen the Savior's resume, we've seen his credentials, we've seen his qualifications. Now we're looking at, well, if this is true, who he is, what is it he has come to do? And that was the remainder of chapter 4 and all the content in chapter 5 and 6. It's like Luke has put another little section before us concerning the powerful word, the authority of Jesus, his teaching, and like what does it look like boots on the ground when this king we have been longing for finally shows up? Luke says, read my fifth, read my sixth chapter, and you will see what this looks like. Remember that last week we saw the raw data of the manifesto of Jesus as he identified himself as that prophetic figure to come, that Isaiah 61 spirit-anointed warrior, the spirit-anointed servant who, Jesus says, speaking of himself, here's what I must do. I must preach the good news of God's kingdom. I must go around and tell people that life with God under the rule of God can be had in the present tense here and now for the poor, for the blind, for the captive, for the oppressed who spiritually need to be set free. You can find this freedom in me now. That's the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom. People must hear this. Therefore, having laid out his manifesto, Luke just simply says, now we're going to watch Jesus act this out. That's all that's going on right now as we transition out of chapter 4 into chapter 5. 
So we're going to witness a miraculous catch of fish. We're going to see a leper cleansed. We're going to see a paralytic healed. And we're going to see a tax collector who follows. And all of these things, if you stitch them together, what they show us is the forward march of God's good news kingdom as King Jesus systematically begins dismantling Satan's dark kingdom. What you're seeing is the kingdom of Christ wage war against Satan's dark kingdom as he actively begins to pluck those dark kingdom citizens out of that dark kingdom and he begins to pull them over and transfer them into the good news kingdom of God. If you want to look at it in this way, if you look at this interaction with Peter, the fish, the leper, the paralytic, with Levi, who is the Matthew of the gospel of Matthew. It's the same guy. Levi had two names, Levi and Matthew. If you want to look at it this way, the golden thread that ties these four episodes together is the thread of authority. The powerful word of Jesus moving the kingdom of God forward as Jesus' mission of salvation is pursued through his powerful word. So when we turn to chapter 5 and we begin to look at verse 1, that's just exactly what we see. We see Jesus acting out his mission. And then we see first this truth that Jesus has authority to call sinners into service. He has this authority to look at sinners and call them into his service, to call them into the service of God's kingdom. Look, starting in verse 1, at how Luke unfolds this truth for us. He notes, starting in verse 1, that on one occasion, this interaction takes place, where the crowd was pressing in on Jesus to hear the word of God. And he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's also the Sea of Galilee, it's the same body of water there. And he, Jesus, saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. So getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, it's Peter's boat, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. You see, the whole background to these opening 11 verses of chapter 5, this whole background of this one occasion, Luke notes, is filled with fishy kinds of details. Luke tells us of Jesus standing by a lake. He tells us about two empty boats. He tells us about fishermen washing their nets after toiling all night and catching nothing. If you've ever gone fishing, that's a horrible feeling. You put a lot of time, energy, effort into this thing. You labored a lot. You got nothing. You're not in the best of moods. But notice that this fish story at the beginning of chapter 5, with all of its details, they're not the main point. They are the backdrop of what's going on, what Luke wants us to see. It's the context that sets up at center stage, again, the focus on the Word of God being taught with power and authority by King Jesus. You see there, Jesus with the crowd pressing in on Him there in verse 1. Why are they pressing in on Him? Because they want to hear the Word of God. There's the word language. Thus, you skip down to verse 3, Jesus does what you expect Him to do according to His manifesto last week. He sat down and taught the people from the boat what? The Word of God. It's just, you, this is what you want to see from Jesus. If He says, I've come to do this, teach with power and authority God's Word so that people can be folded into the kingdom, you would expect His mission to line up with His manifesto, and that's exactly what you see going on right now. But notice that it's what happens after this teaching moment which emphasizes the power of Jesus' word. Upon finishing his words, his teaching there from the boat, notice that Jesus turns to Simon Peter and says to him in verse 4, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing, but notice his response, but at your word, but at your word, I will let down your nets. Now, if you have a fertile imagination, your mind is spinning right now on asking yourself, what was the tone of voice of that last sentence? 
Is it something like Peter maybe exercising patience in his reply, maybe through gritted teeth, he's saying, Master, we've toiled all night long, but at your word, I'm going to let down the nets, said Peter with extreme patience, as the preacher man dares to tell the fisherman how to go about doing his professional job. Or perhaps maybe in this moment, it's less of Peter exercising patience in his reply because Peter is recalling what we read and saw at the end of chapter 4 last week, which was what? Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. And maybe he witnesses Jesus exercising the authority of his word and rebuking that fever And maybe now in this moment, it's Peter saying, man, I am bushed, I am beat, we have fished all night, I know how to do it, I am a professional, I know how to go about catching fish, it was a complete zero, but here's what I'm going to do, I'm going to show, I'm going to model in a sense what Christian discipleship looks like, even in the most insane of times when it looks like Jesus is asking me to do something that is 100% bonkers from my perspective. I'm going to say to Jesus, at your word, I will still march forward in obedience. It could very well be that that kind of response from Peter as well. After all, Jesus, I've seen you exercise your word with power, with authority, rebuking the fever of my mother-in-law. She's immediately healed, gets up and begins to serve. And so while I may not initially want to do it because you've told me, At the power and authority of your word, I'm going to walk in obedience to you. Either way, and maybe any other mixture of emotion and thoughts in between going on in Peter's life, what we see is this. It's in obedience to Jesus' powerful word that leads him to let let down the nets one more time and notice that it results in more than I'm positive he ever bargained for. Result number one is an absolutely astonishing haul of fish, which fills the boats so much that they began to sink. That's result number one that I'm positive he was not bargaining for. Because again, perhaps he's saying, listen, uh, I'm going to let down the nets, but here's what's going to happen. We ain't going to catch no fish. I'm a professional after all, Jesus, and I know how these things work and they don't work like this. Well, Jesus exercises his power and authority, and they catch a boatload of fish, and it begins to sink. The second result is this. Peter, you notice in verse 9, is so astonished. He's so astonished at the catch of fish they've taken in that it says there at the beginning of verse 8, he falls down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. Now we know the story too well to be amazed at that response. That is not what you would expect to happen right then. You don't expect someone to see an amazing catch of fish and then fall down at their knees before a person who is no longer master but now being called Lord and saying, you need to leave me because I'm a sinful man. You expect any number of responses, but you don't expect that response from Peter. But this is the thing that Luke wants us to see right now. It's what he wants Theophilus to see. It's what he wants you to see. He wants us to see this second result, this key response of Peter falling down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me from a sinful man, O Lord. Because, why? In this moment, Peter is immediately conscious of something. He knows how fishing works. You fish at night in the shallows. You don't fish in the noonday sun in the deeps. The last thing that should have happened is a boat sinking catch of fish. It just should not have happened. He's a professional. He knows how this world works. He's conscious that there's something supernatural. The supernatural has invaded the natural in this moment. 
and what has taken place. But notice, I think he's also immediately conscious of something else. He's conscious of the supreme power of Jesus and his word. Again, he knows how this works. At your word, Jesus, I'm going to go do this. And Peter's no fool. He stitches one and one together and recognizes the reason why this catch of fish, this supernatural moment has invaded the natural, has nothing to do with him and his professional skills. It has everything to do with the one that's standing right there in the boat has everything to do with his power with his authority with his word it has everything to do with jesus and some of us have been there in our lives before where we say in this moment this should not be taking place like it is in this moment this event should not have unfolded the way it did but in this moment i recognize that this supernatural thing has invaded the natural has absolutely nothing to do with me and has everything to do with king jesus right now That's where Peter is at in this moment. Peter responds again, falling down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. And in an Isaiah 6 sort of way, do you remember Isaiah 6? The prophet catching a glimpse of the hem of the robe of the king, it completely unzips him, undoes him grandeur and the majesty and it leads him to confess I am a sinful man as well we're seeing this take place in Peter's life you see Peter's genuine encounter with the spirit anointed savior exposes his unworthiness it's exposing his sin If you remember back at the end of Luke chapter 4, the demons that are being cast out by the powerful words of Jesus refer to Jesus as the Holy One of God. Peter's getting a glimpse of the Holy One of God he hasn't seen before. And like it unzips him, it undoes him, it drives him to his knees to say, you need to depart from me. I am a sinful man. And in this, Peter is proving to be the Isaiah 61 target audience that Jesus was sent to save. Do you remember last week who Jesus came to save? What did he say? I've come to bring good news. I'm the Savior who's going to save those who are spiritually poor, spiritually captive, spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed. I've come to save and set free these kinds of sinners. And in this moment, what you are seeing in Peter's life is the recognition. He's beginning to be awakened to who he truly is. I am one of those who needs to be saved. And it drives him to his knees before Jesus. But notice, 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 notice how the response of Jesus to Peter is not what we, do, what we would expect. Again, something totally different. For many of us, we fully expect Jesus to be grossed out by Peter's confession of, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me, Jesus. I'm a sinful man. You're right. You're gross. Go fix yourself. Do something. Don't you come near me. Get out of my way. Don't be near me. Go and do something else. Get out of my sight. That's sort of what we intuit if we're just sort of honest with ourselves that that this is how Jesus views sinners with the gross icky factor. Jesus is cool with perfect people, beautiful people, people who are right, people who are rich, people who are good in their own eyes. Those are the kinds of folk that Jesus wants to hang out with, not those ooh, gross, icky, poor, blind, captive, oppressed kind of people. But Jesus responds to Peter in a way that we do not expect. We expect Jesus to be grossed out by Peter's confession of, I am a sinful man. But instead, Jesus' comeback was this. Actually, from now on, I have work for you. See, Jesus is in the business of not departing from sinners. Jesus is in the business of redeploying sinners. Jesus is in the business of saying, oh, yes, you see yourself as a sinner. Oh, yes, you see yourself in need of a Savior. Oh, yes, you see yourself in need of me. That's exactly what qualifies you now to go forward and to take the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom forward. He doesn't boot Peter to the curb. He instead redeploys Peter into his service. He exercises the authority that only belongs to King Jesus and says, I'm going to call you sinner 
Peter, into my service because you are now proving, showing the very qualifications, the very credentials of what it takes to be one who carries this gospel forward. People who do not see themselves in need of a Savior aren't going to carry that good news forward. You see yourself in need of a Savior. Why? Because you see yourself as a sinner and you know what you need. You need me to save you. That's the very thing that qualifies you to stop fishing for fish and to begin fishing for men. Because those who know themselves to be sinners in need of a Savior, this is why Jesus calls Peter into his service. Listen, do you understand how reassuring this is for you and for me? You see, we are prone to think the exact opposite. We're prone to think the exact opposite. We're prone to think that I must excuse myself from gathering on a Sunday morning because I'm a sinner. That I need to excuse myself from getting in deep with my Jesus family in a community group. I need to excuse myself from being in intimate community in a discipling group. I need to excuse myself from going downtown to the Washington Street Mission and serving the homeless. I need to excuse myself from serving people like the Hartmans or the Newinghams with Hope Orphan Home or the Dream Center. I need to excuse myself from partnering with someone like Tom with relevant practical ministry for men. I need to excuse myself from these things. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I don't have my acts together. And it's not until I get my act together that I'm actually going to be qualified to to come and serve and point others to Jesus. We are so readily putting ourselves in the place where we want verse 8 on our lips, but we refuse to let verse 10 be in our ears. We're willing to say to Jesus, you need to leave me, I'm a sinner, but we're unwilling to let the reassuring words of Jesus come into our ears and to remind us that I'm not in the business of telling sinners to depart, I'm actually in the business of redeploying sinners because it's sinners who see their need for me. So it's the very fact that you are a sinner that qualifies you to go downtown, that qualifies you to go across the street to the neighbor that qualifies you to preach the gospel to your child, that qualifies you to speak the good news of God's kingdom to your spouse, that qualifies you to be the light of Jesus Christ to a world that needs to see Jesus. The world doesn't need to see perfect people who think they don't need Jesus. The world needs to see people who say, I know myself to be a sinner, and Jesus says, qualified, now go. Now go. With my authority, I'm redeploying you into my service. It's not perfect people. It's not the beautiful people. It's not the know-it-alls. It's not the elite put-together, never-stumble-bumble-and-fall type of folks that Jesus calls. It's men and women who, like Peter, know themselves to be a sinner. Verse 11, and when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean you tomorrow need to wake up, sell your house, sell your car, dump your Roth, go crazy, empty your checking account, leave everything, follow Jesus? No, what it means is this. You need to wake up, set your alarm for 6.30 a.m. You need to go to church. You need to go to work. You need to talk to your neighbor. But now you're going as one who's been redeployed into the service of Jesus. You're not going to go to work tomorrow to just merely make cash to pay your mortgage. You're going to go to work to God tomorrow as one who's been redeployed in the service of the king, catching the souls of men and not just catching another paycheck. It's simple. It's practical like that. Now, Jesus has authority to call sinners into service. We also see what? That Jesus has authority to overthrow the effects of sin. That's what's going on with this encounter with the leper. Look, starting in verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, notice his reaction is very Peter-esque. He fell on his face and begged Jesus, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Jesus stretches out his hand, touches him, saying, I will be clean, and immediately the leprosy left him. So with the leprous man, what you need to understand is there's a distinction that's being made in this moment. This man is not full of leprosy. That's how Luke describes him. 
He's not full of leprosy because he is a sinner. Right? We want to to do that sometimes, go, wow, their life's really jacked up. They must be the king of sinners. Somehow shove people's sufferings into their laps and make like a hard equation. Jesus is going to debunk that clumsy way of thinking actually later in Luke 13. What we need to see is that Jesus never draws absolute parallels between an individual's suffering and that individual's sin. Is this leper a sinner? Yes. Because they're human and were born with a sinful nature. The proof of that has nothing to do with their leprosy. But what we can say is that in this case, looking at this man full of leprosy, that all suffering in this world is connected in one way or another, though, to Adam and Eve's disobedience in the garden. So because of the sin of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, the whole world gets dumped on its head, relationship with God gets severed, and the tentacles, the tendrils of sin, eke their way out and consume and override and destroy and upturn everything. Sickness is in this world because of the sinful act of Adam and Eve. And so now what we can say is to that extent, suffering, sickness, disease, death, leprosy, like in this man, it is in this world in which we live because of the result of that human sin back in Genesis 3. So in other words, the leper that we see here before us is suffering as a consequence of humanity's rebellion against God. Thus, in Jesus's encounter with this leper, For Jesus to show up, who's in a second, is going to touch this leper and speak a powerful word to this leper. What you see is that Jesus is overthrowing the effects of sin in this world, and we need to see that. That he not only speaks to sinners directly, but he has the power to overthrow the effects of sin in this world. Like Peter, he, this leper, is among the oppressed and captive in need of the salvation that's found only in Jesus. And notice, like Peter, he too falls before Jesus. I thought that was interesting. You see a lot of people falling down before Jesus. Peter went to his knees. This leper goes to his face. Face, ground, before Jesus. Begs him. When was the last time you begged Jesus for something? Have you ever begged Jesus for something? Been so desperate in your life, and you've come to a place where you're like, man, if Jesus does not do this, it will not happen. See, some of us haven't been desperate enough for Jesus like this leper. He's an outcast. He's been removed from society. As we learn from the book of Leviticus, he's unclean, unclean. He is withdrawn. He knows his desperate need. He is begging Jesus, if you will. If you have like a microscopic amount of care, I know you can make me clean. His words revealed that he was absolutely convinced that his case would just be a piece of cake for Jesus as Jesus just only had a care and was willing. And then notice in the turn of events, Jesus did the unthinkable, proving just how willing and able he is. He stretched out his hand and touched the man, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. All right, so stop. In your mind, find Marty McFly. Hop into your DeLorean, fly back in time to our sermon series for the book of Leviticus. Leviticus 13 and 14 was all about all the unclean leprosy, skin disease stuff. What is like the absolute last thing you're supposed to do to a leper? Touch him. Why? The crowds would have been gasping at this. (gasps) Like Jesus touched the leper. And the reason why, like you would have felt like the oxygen evacuate from that space as people inhale in that moment of Jesus touching is because this, according to God's law, the unclean has the power to make the clean unclean. So if I'm clean, ceremonially speaking, if I go and touch the unclean, the unclean has power to make me unclean. 
But what's going on in this moment is the complete reversal of that. This is the reversal of the gospel, the power of the king. In that moment, he touches the unclean, and instead of unclean making Jesus unclean, the clean makes the unclean clean. And so there would have been this collective oxygen intake. With Jesus, the exact opposite is happening of what everyone expects. Here again, the instantaneous healing confirms Jesus' authority. As the Spirit-anointed servant, he revealed himself to be in that Nazareth synagogue. He has the authority to overthrow the effects of sin. Third, with a touch and a word, Jesus proves his authority to overthrow the effects of sin. But you see this, Jesus has authority to forgive sin. He's going to call sinners into his service. He's going to overthrow the effects of sin. And now we see he has the authority to forgive sin. Verse 17. What is Jesus doing again there, starting in verse 17? He's doing what we would expect him to do, which is what? He was teaching. Teaching again the word of God, exercising authority. We're reminded there at the end of verse 17, notice that little sentence there, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. What is Luke doing in saying that? What you need to know is he's saying like, hey, you need to pay attention. I'm giving you a little foreshadowing right now. I'm giving you an authority heads up right now. We're about to see Jesus exercise some power that's unique to him. What you need to know personally about Pastor Jonathan is this interaction with the paralytic shows up in the other gospels, and it is by far my most favorite interaction, I think, with Jesus as he interacts, showing us the power and the purpose of what he came to do. Luke continues, verse 18, and beholds, there were some men who were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, just P.S. real quick, they encap- the, the, the show The Chosen, right? You know what I'm talking about, The Chosen? They encapsulate this episode here, and I think they do it phenomenally. I would encourage you to go, go check it out. They were seeking to bring to him, bring him in and lay him before Jesus, that is the paralytic, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let their friend down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he turns to the paralytic and says, Man, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Isn't this the greatest thing on earth? I'm so glad Jesus has shown up. No. Who in the world is this to speak blasphemies like that? That's their response. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Luke says this is what they were questioning in their heart. Now, for all the boneheaded maneuvers made by the religious leaders, we read the Gospels and we're like, man, what a bunch of knuckleheads, right? Does anyone else sort of approach religious leaders like that? Like, what a bunch of clowns, those buffoons. Like, why can't they figure it out? What you need to know is you're the Pharisees in, that, in, in, in the Gospels, right? You wouldn't be the one person in the crowd saying, man, I've got this Jesus thing cracked. Like, right, this is you, this is me. Boneheaded maneuvers, but we need to give credit where credit is due. Why do I say this? It's because their very last question in verse 21. In verse 21, when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone, they are spot on in thinking this way. They are not off base. They're on base. They rightly recognize that all sin is ultimately committed against God. They rightly recognize that God alone is judge, which means God alone only has the authority to forgive sin since it is against him. So the scribes and the Pharisees are now questioning Jesus' words. When Jesus says, man, your sins are forgiven you, Because they realize in this moment exactly, with 100% clarity, they know what Jesus is doing. Jesus is claiming authority to perform a work that is uniquely God's when he says, your sins are forgiven you. They know Jesus is taking what belongs to God, pulling it over and saying, this is true of me. Either this is true or it is blasphemy as they say. They are spot on in their assessment of what's going on right now. Now here's the deal. Anyone can say anything about anything. Someone could walk through this door right now and say, I have the authority to forgive sin. They can say that. I mean, it doesn't take much to open your mouth and let words slip past your lips. Anyone can say that. 
Somebody could walk through this door and look at someone sick and say, and I'm going to tell you right now, rise and get up and walk. Anyone can say anything about anything. It's easy to say things like, your sins are forgiven, Jesus says. It can be easy to say things like, rise up and walk. The problem comes when it's actually time to do what you said you would do. Because you're either going to be proven to be adult, a complete fool, who's just shooting words out of their mouth and has no power or authority to do what you said you can do, or you're going to actually do what you said to do and prove you do have the authority to say these kinds of things. And that's what I love about this interaction with the paralytic. This is why verse 24 is a verse you probably need to circle, highlight, underline, italicize, and bold. It is the key verse of this interaction. In verse 24, school is in session and Rabbi Jesus is about to conduct a lesson in divine authority. When he looks to the people and says, but that you may know, I'm going to give you evidence so that you can 100% be certain and know I am who I say I am and can thus do what I say I can do. That the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He turns, looks at the man who was paralyzed and says to him, rise, pick up your bed, go home, and immediately, not after like 12 week physical therapy program. Not after a couple of vitamins and a workout regimen. Immediately. Rises up, picks up his mat, goes home, glorifying God. For Jesus, listen, when Jesus says what he says here, I'm going to give you evidence so that you might know the Son of Man. That phrase there, for Jesus to refer to himself as the Son of Man, that is not a random phrase. Notice S, son, is capitalized, and M, man, is capitalized. Jesus is taking a phrase from the Old Testament and saying, here's another prophetic figure who was to come, and what you need to know is, I am him. I did this back in this Nazareth synagogue with the spirit-anointed servant, and I'm doing it right now with this son of man figure. You're sitting here going, okay, great, what does that even mean? I'm glad you're asked, because I'm going to tell you right now. Here's what it means. It's a very specific title, the son of man title, which the crowd, I'm telling you, would have immediately tuned into because this phrase, the Son of Man, it's a very specific reference to a very specific figure that the prophet Daniel said, hey, there's one who's coming. Keep your eyes peeled. It was a vision that the prophet Daniel received about one who was the Son of Man. So if you go back to Daniel chapter 7, if you go back to verses 13 and 14 in Daniel 7, what you discover is an interaction where the Lord God reveals to the prophet Daniel in a vision, and in that vision it's these words, there came one, like a son of man, there's the phrase, and he, that son of man, came to the ancient of days, that's a phrase to refer to the Lord God, Yahweh. And this son of man is prevented, presented before him. And here's what we can say about this son of man. And to this son of man was given dominion. That's authority. And glory in a kingdom. That's authority language. That all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That's authority language. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. That's authority language. Which shall not pass away in his kingdom. One that shall not be destroyed. So in short, what Jesus is doing right now in this moment is saying, Hey, do you guys remember your Bible? Do you remember that whole Daniel 7, son of man kind of thing? He's standing right now in front of you. And you know, and I know you know, that all that authority that's attributed to that son of man, he's right here in front of you right now. And I'm going to exercise this authority before you. The Daniel 7, son of man, is one with all authority. And Jesus is saying, first, this figure is me. And second, this means I have absolute authority. And this isn't some future authority, but a here and now present tense authority on earth. The Son of Man has authority on earth right now, present tense, to pronounce God's final verdict over an individual that your sins are forgiven. Again, do you realize how good this news is? You can have assurance right now that you are right with God. Why? Because when the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. When the good news of the gospel is applied to your soul, it is applied to your soul. He has that 
kind of authority. He's not, he's not robbing authority. He's not speaking in ways that he's not allowed to speak. He's not acting in ways that he's not allowed to act. He is the son of man. Therefore, he has that authority to look at a sinner and say, what I'm going to accomplish on the cross and what I did accomplish on the cross and what I accomplished when I resurrected from the grave, proving my final, full, forever victory over Satan, sin, and death, I am showing you sign after sign after sign after sign that I have the authority to look a sinner square in the face and say, don't depart from me, actually draw near to me because I have saved you and you are forgiven. Have you just ever melted into that reality? Like when was the last time your knees were buckled by the fact that Jesus has forgiven you? Forgiven you. Washed clean. No longer standing guilty and condemned before a holy God, but standing before a holy God welcomed and wanted. Why? Because you're a phenomenal person? Because you're so good? Because you, you have the Jesus thing figured out? No, 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 no. Because Jesus in grace and in mercy looked to you and said, I to declare you right with God. And it melts your knees. Because in that moment, what do you know? You know this, I do not deserve this. I don't deserve forgiveness. I'm the guilty one. But yet here I am, on the backside of forgiveness, welcomed into the kingdom. Because the Son of Man has that authority to declare me forgiven, to be right with God. This is absolutely amazing. Notice what's the crowd's reaction. Verse 26, they were amazed. They go away amazed, seizing them all, this amazement. They glorify God. They're filled with all. They say probably the biggest uh, obvious statement of it all. When well, we've seen some extraordinary things today. You think? I love how simple the Bible is, man. But notice they also go away with an either-or challenge. Either Jesus has authority to forgive sin or he doesn't. Either he is divine or he's a deceiver. And that's part of the point of Jesus' mission. It is designed to challenge every one of us here this morning to wrestle with the either-orness of his authority on earth to forgive sins. If he has his authority, this is the best news you're ever going to hear in your entire life. It just is. Or Jesus is a complete buffoon, full of hot air, a giant liar, a deceiver worse than Lucifer than himself, and you need to rebuff everything trash this whole Jesus thing and go find something else. Those are your only two options. You do not have a middle road option. Either he is or he is not the son of man with authority to forgive sins. The question is, if you find yourself being led to say, I think he just might be who he says he is. Two things. One, you're able to see this because of what we prayed for earlier. The Holy Spirit himself is opening your eyes and drawing you to see these things. Second, what today is preventing you from doing what Levi is about to do and what Peter did? What is preventing you from falling on your face? Leaving everything and casting it all at the feet of Jesus. Very, very quickly and finally, we see this last thing. Jesus has authority to call sinners to repentance. Jesus has authority to call sinners to repentance. Peter, James, and John, Jesus calls a tax collector named Levi. This is the Matthew of the Gospel of Matthew. He says, follow me. Like the three before him, he leaves everything and follows Jesus. What's his response to the call of Jesus? He actually throws a party and invites his buddies. I love that. I wish more of us would be like Levi in this moment. Wow, that's really good news from Jesus. What's the right response? It's not to like start speaking in King James Version English in our prayers and to start wearing like stiff-necked collars and like walking around all rigid to show people how serious I am to be a Christian. Some of us just need to throw a party for Jesus and invite a bunch of people. Let's be the, br the bringer of the better wine like Jesus. Let's bring the, the br be the bringer of the better food like Jesus. Jesus didn't mind a little party being thrown. And some of us could stand to learn that lesson. His response to the call of Jesus, throw a party, invite his buddies. What was the response of the Pharisees and the scribes? Grumble again. Why are you guys eating with tax collectors and sinners? And it's in this response to their grumbling that Jesus answers. Listen, it's not those who are well 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And there it is. He has this authority. Despite what anyone else may think, Jesus has that kind of authority. And it's in that authority that we have confidence. Confidence in what way? Confidence in Jesus' right to call sinners into service. Confidence in Jesus' power to overthrow all the effects of sin in this fallen world. Confidence in Jesus' authority here and now to forgive the sin of every man and woman who comes to him in faith. Confidence in that whoever we are, if we, like Levi, turn away from whatever life we have lived and turn to Jesus for forgiveness, we will be welcomed by him who calls sinners to repentance. Friend, is this your confidence? Like right now. Is this what you believe? Do you have a believing confidence like this? And my follow-up question is, do you have a behaving confidence? Not only a confidence where I say, I believe this to be true, I have this kind of confidence, but does this kind of believing confidence lead into a behaving that says, I'm going to walk out these doors now for the next six days and 22 hours, confident in the authority and the power of Jesus, and my life is going to look like Levi, my life is going to look like Peter, James, and John, my life is going to look like I've left everything and followed Jesus. We need that picture in the world today. I need Jesus to help me, Pastor Jonathan, to live that way this coming week. My assumption is you do too. So let's pray for those things to happen right now. Amen? Lord, would you help us to walk in light of what we know to be true? Would you bring our behavior to align with what we believe? we can have confidence that Jesus has this kind of authority. He has this kind of authority. He acted upon this kind of authority. We say we believe this. Lord, would you help our behavior to align with what we believe? Would you help us to make the connections, the practical connections of what this means for me this coming week? The way that I talk, the way that I think, the way that I act, Lord, would you make us a Jesus people whose lives align with our confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins on earth right now here today. Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen.